0: Schlesisches Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden.
1: Germany's believe Defense Minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Toll. Ich, ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steht. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Spargel
2: Weltmeister
1: ist China, denn die
2: All right, everybody, welcome to Spas This is Ted. It's Michelle. And we are joined here by a wonderful guest, David de Jong, who is a journalist and author of the recent book, Nazi Billionaire. So David, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. This is uh, as grim a topic as it is, uh, one that is very much in our wheelhouse as a podcast. Because, um, for for long-time listeners, you'll know that we've uh, already done a three-part series on various uh, specific companies during the Nazi era, mainly focusing on their conduct at the time, uh, collaboration with the Nazis, uh, role in the Holocaust, etc., all sorts of uh, nefarious actions of some of the best-known companies in Germany today, and... So when I saw this book that recently came out that David wrote, um, looking you know at the the history of many of these dynastic families, but also not just their conduct during the war, but also how these families have persisted and largely haven't dealt with their history over time, and and, and yeah, persist to this day, often um, with pretty outrageous quotes um, and statements about their their family history. I know you uh, you cite one of the. The daughters of the the Balsen uh, fortune who um she had some some choice words about her uh, their use of forced labor during the war right she she certainly did
0: yeah it was in may 2019 when she gave a talk at a marketing conference in hamburg where she famously took the stage and actually responded to kevin Kühnert, who is now the general secretary of the SPD. yeah but at the time he was a uso uh, chairman and who was talking at another stage? Also, the marketing conference. These marketing conferences in Berlin, in Germany, are quite political. It seems, because he was talking at another stage about nationalizing um, companies like BMW. Yeah. Or using them as a kind of common common ownership. Yeah. That was what he was proposing, and uh, she responded uh, very strongly to that. Uh, kind of offhand, started making these offhand remarks about how she's a capitalist. Uh, and then, of course, furious reactions at, at social media followed. And um, well, not only that she was a capitalist, but that she wanted to buy a yacht with her dividends and blah blah. blah. And, then, <laughs> and then, and then, and uh, then, furious reactions on social media followed. With it said, don't you know your family company Baus and most famous from for the Leibniz, uh cookies that unfortunately very we'll, tasty little yes, cookies. Yes, yeah. I, I, I like them too. This is <laughs> like my one. This is one thing where I can say. You know, I find all these car brands like. Total, totally prolo or, or. Yeah. but 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 Leibniz cookies, I'm very partial to. But then Bill followed up um, with some. With, then Bill uh, asked her some follow up questions in which responded to what we paid German forced laborers the same amount as we. Sorry, forced laborers in our company the same amount as we did our normal employees, and that's when you know
2: that's when it that's uh, when things really blew up. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, we'll get into this, but n- the, normally the approach is a little bit more kind of brushing things under the rug, and this was pretty outrageous yeah. for her to be like, no, actually, we treated the the slave yeah. laborers, you know, yeah, yeah, songs yeah, that, yeah, whatever yeah. you want to call them. Yeah. Like, uh, we treated them really well, actually, which is like, so, yeah, right. Well, there was, you point out, she got some initial blowback for that, but actually was then promoted internally uh, within the company.
0: I mean, it was the... The the blowback that she received was following those comments to build that yeah, when, yeah, when it yeah, became yeah, a yeah. national scandal. And then I mean I use that example because it follows this tried and true method where they issue an apology and then they can immediately commission a prominent history professor uh, to do a you know a thorough academic study uh, of the matter uh, which is scheduled for 2023. It's always it always takes four years for some reason. Yeah. Like, well, you forget about it by e- then, exactly, exactly. And then you know there's going to be another Mea Kulpa interview uh, by Verena Bausen, Well, she already did one with Zu Deutsche, so it's probably going to be tight. Um, <laughs> it's such a predictable cycle that you It is. It is. I mean, it's like uh, this, yeah. it's like it's a it's a corporate communication, you know. It's and, and she's following in in the footsteps of, of of the families I write about. Of course, Bausen compared to the families I write about in the book is is relatively small. I mean, they're politi- politically quite influential um uh, sense that, that that her father is very active for the sede um most of the families are right about uh, or either massive donors to CDU or or um you know uh, but 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 they're compared. But the Bowden family and, and brand—I mean—it's a small, it's half a billion yeah. revenue company. This is not, you know, not like BMW or Volkswagen Group or Porsche. And,
2: and the, the, the kind of wealth or, that your your book focuses exactly. on is the more industrial exactly. and has a, yeah, a few more zeros on it. Exactly, than the exactly. cookie company. Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. You know, these are mere multi-millionaires. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you
2: know, yeah. yeah. I'm sure oh. she's struggling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I <right? Yes. laughs> feel bad. <laughs> small potatoes. Yeah, and so we'll, we'll we'll get into this a bit later sure. too. But um. Uh, you know we can we can focus on the the general aspect of the book but like you mentioned with these sort of histories they commission from a prominent historian they're not always uh necessarily up to snuff with what you'd uh what you'd want from a a real academic history like for example like the i you know the the crups um, Harold James wrote one of the the crups, and like Richard Evans had a pretty scathing takedown of it in the in the LRB, which we I think discussed beforehand. But the, the, these sort of like exonerations they try to go through by by commissioning the histories can be a bit problematic. It,
0: it's funny that you mention Harold James because he is really seen in German academic circles as quite an apologist uh, for German big business. Um, but you know Harold James is still quite. You know, I mean, most of these studies that the the, the families commissioned, like the Quan study that was commissioned, uh, was 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 excellently done, and as well with with the Flick uh, dynasty. Um, it's what happens after the study is out, where the
2: where the where the the, Who the reads whitewash, it? <laughs> the whitewash <Yeah. laughs> really starts. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so you know, that's a, that's a little bit of what we're what we're talking about here. But could you tell us like what? What led you to to want to write this book? Because you know it's a like like you point out in the book, like it's not a total secret. Like people know right. that these things have right. happened. They do publish these books. Sure. And so, like, what brought you to want to write a book specifically about this topic and really detailing the the legacy of this? You know, whether that's on a professional side or a personal side. Sure. Or, yeah, I mean
0: it. it, it I started as a reporter uh, at Bloomberg News in in late 2011, actually in New York, and it was a new investigative team which covered hidden wealth and uh, non-stock exchange-listed family-owned companies, the family office space, um, and as well, like, offshore, you know, that kind of, and it was, you know, I started the week after Occupy Wall Street was, you know, violently removed from from uh, Zuccotti Park. Of course, ironically, it was Michael Bloomberg who gave that order. Of course, I just started working uh, at that. You know, so it was nice. The nice contradiction. It was really a time when the decade of well, then it was the phrase of the one percent versus the ninety nine percent. I mean, I think now we've gotten to the zero point one percent versus the ninety nine point nine percent a decade later, and of course. You know, it was just starting both, at least in the United States with with, with that, the, just a few years out of the financial crisis, um, and the, also with the rise of the Tea Party, but also just the, the wealth discrepancies that were really becoming coming into focus, well, not only in the US, of course, the Occupy movement was global. Um, and I started on this team actually covering, covering North America and covering, Companies like Coke Industries, um, then owned by two Koch brothers, now there's only one left, Charles, and the Walden family, which controls Walmart, and certain real estate fortunes. But after about a couple months in, I was asked to, uh, if I could cover the German-speaking countries because I'm Dutch, or native Dutch. And um, I was like, I was, you know, I. I was like, sure, yeah, I mean, why not? So I would cover that, would cover the German-speaking countries from New York and I would actually go to uh, Germany and to Switzerland and to Austria where, you know, in Germany, Bloomberg has five bureaus in in Switzerland two and in Austria one. And I would make this kind of tour between Thanksgiving and Christmas and I would come back with these stories which always revolved around kind of history uh, mixed with finance and business. And I noticed that these stories were getting a huge, you know, were really resonating with with an English reading audience. But furthermore, what I found was this kind of perpetuated myth about the reckoning that, you know, not only of, of, I mean, I really focused on the reckoning of of Germany's wealthiest business dynasties and, and, you know, to, to a large extent, the most economically powerful and politically powerful two clans. And this myth that they have also done a good job of reckoning with their Third Reich histories. And particularly when it comes to the studies that I mentioned is these, you know, a scandal erupts in Germany, we just talked about Baals and um, generally it's German journalists who dig up these stories and you know immediately to 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 quell fury an academic study is commissioned four years later the study is published generally very thorough very detailed and outlines the crimes uh committed um by you know beloved patriarch x or uh, you know beloved company z and then you know there's a mea culpa interview and then what happens to the findings in these studies you know they go on the shelf and they say, well, you know, here in this twelve hundred page book, written in dense academic German, you can find everything that we that we did. Which of course is hiding the story in plain sight. And also, you know, it limits the accessibility of these of of of, uh, of, of these studies, of these of these findings, especially to a very, very small, special highly specialized audience. Um, and it also led me to beg the question: Who exactly is the reckoning with, right? Because or, or this this supposed reckoning, because you never reach surviving forced and slave laborers uh, or their heirs. Of course, millions who came from uh, you know mainly Eastern Europe, uh, all over Europe, but mainly Eastern Europe, Poland, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, um, and you know it kind of. In my view, it allows these families to kind of also lean on German culpability, uh, where you know these, these studies are published and, and it's like you know you have a German you have a you have a country which is inundated daily with with you know new revelations uh, with regard, on all levels of society with new revelations you know still in twenty twenty two. Uh, regarding the Third Reich and, you know, where where there's also a sense of, a little bit of sense of, you know, being desensitized. And when, you know, you also, you kind of, you you pacify the debate if you only p- publish something in German because then people can say well, you know, you, your father was, you know, was a Nazi, but then the, the family points back and said, well, we control BMW, plus your father was in the Gestapo, too, you know, and so were you to tell us to tell us anything.
2: Yeah, and Germany also being, I mean, German business being so reliant on exports, too, right? Like right. Totally. Any, all these companies are going to sell a majority of their stuff exactly. abroad, yes, and like, if it's only in dense point. academic very German, their reputation then is untarnished in right. U.S., China, wherever.
0: Right, so... And I found two particular, I mean, the reason I ended up writing the book is because I found two particularly galling examples of, of global companies and, and the families that control these companies that where I really found, you know, the whitewashing to be so blatant after a supposed reckoning that, uh, that it was a good, this is, you know, this is a cover-up. Um, so the main one was the Quant, is the Quant dynasty, the branch there's one branch that descends from Magda, uh, uh, Magda Goebbels, That's uh, that's, uh, uh, but it's actually their richer cousins. Susanna uh, Stefan Quant and Susanna Klotter were the controlling shareholders of BMW, also the largest annual donors to the CDU. Who, who you know, where after the study that they that that they and their cousins commissioned, and the findings that their patriarch, their grandfather Gunter Quant, um, and their father, uh, Herbert Quant, who saved BMW from bankruptcy, you know, um, through their weapons and battery factories uh, during the Third Reich, you know, exploited almost 60,000 forced and slave laborers, arianized uh, and expropriated, arianized companies in, in, in Nazi Germany owned by uh, by Jewish business owners and expropriated um many companies in Nazi occupied Germany uh, in, in, in the occupied territory European occupied territories uh, as well as uh, mass uh, massive um, weapons production I mean Gunther Quandt was one of the largest um, weapons uh, weapons producers of, of of the third in the third Reich and got off scot-free as it his son and that you today have Susanne Klatten and Stefan Quant who work from the, the Gunther Quant House in Bad Homburg, outside of Frankfurt, uh, because they decided, you know, you don't have to, you know, they, they, they work from a building named after a Nazi war criminal. And, but what's even more damaging is, you know, on an annual basis, you have the Herbert Quant Media Prize, which is awarded. And you have four of Germany's most prominent journalists sit on that board together with Stefan Krunt. Um And, you know, the, the former editor-in-chief of, of BILT, um, the uh, current uh, editor-in-chief of NZZ, of Capital, of ZDF. And they left, again, for the past decade, they left a whitewashed biography of Herbert Quant on the website of a journalism, of one of Germany's largest journalism prizes, where the only thing that referred um, to Herbert Kwan's third Reich activities was the fact that he bo- joined the board of his father's, father's uh, battery company in 1940. And then to kind of top to add, you know, adding insult to injury, so that's a complete whitewash, and an insult to ge- to, 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 Germ- to, to, well, to Germany as well, but to journalism, to German journalism most particularly. And thirdly, then, you know, this study came out in 2011, and in 2016, you had BMW consolidating its, its philanthropic a- activities on a global level and decided to rename their foundation the BMW Foundation Herbert Quant uh, with, and gave it the motto, Inspire Responsible Leadership. Uh, oh and, and, and you ex- know, ex- based ex- on the fact that, that, that Herbert Quant saved... BMW for bankruptcy in 1959, but leaving out the fact that he, you know, had responsibility over Berlin factory, over battery factories in Berlin, where thousands of forced slave laborers were used, including hundreds of, of female, um, female slave laborers from concentration camps, who, um, you know, designed, built, and, and dismantled a sub-concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland, who acquired companies uh, stolen from Jews in France, and who used at his own private estate, not far from Berlin, uh, forced laborers and and prisoners of war, and you know today you have you know you have a, a massive global foundation in his name with the motto "Inspire Responsible Leadership." So that's it's a little uh, bit on the nose. Uh, yeah. you're right, exactly, exactly. Well, they, they don't think so at all, you know. But but that goes to show kind of the brazenness of of uh, of the uh, of the whitewashing,
2: as I as I, as I view it. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's a great. You know, it's a great example to, to indicate what we're talking about here. And, you know, w- also one of the reasons I was drawn to this book um, and having you on the podcast was, you know, we uh, we kind of try to take apart some of these, some of the myths and the right. overly rosy depictions of, of right. Germany. and And I see what you... What you do here, I think, is really take apart two very important ones that are almost like foundational to the the national culture today. One, as you mentioned, is that Germany is really exemplary in in learning from its history, right? Which I think, in some levels, is true. Like you know, you go on a little walk around Berlin. there's this memorial. There's the Stolpersteine. There's right. the you know what have you. Like there are a lot of museums. Like you know, there there is a lot of credit that that, that can be given there, but. If there's not accountability on an individual level and these companies that in many cases profited directly from the Nazi war crimes are more successful from it and not really even apologizing from it, how much can you say there's really learning from the history? Right. And and the other is that there's this sort of essential kind of like. Goodness and morality behind the, Germany's economy, right. right? The 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 like Wirtschaftswunder and all that right. is always so. You know, when you watch like a documentary about this, it's always so yeah. like rosy. It's like, wow, we realized we made some mistakes, and we all just decided to to buckle down and get to work and rebuild the country. And now Germany's the export Weltmeister, and ah. everybody loves the cars, and you know all this like. It's so like positive. You started and,
1: uh, working hard for good in a good way instead of yeah. in the bad way. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. It's like yeah, Hitler's war machine turns into the the car exporter <laughs> that everybody loves, and it's like well, they're kind of the same guys who did both exactly. of those things exactly. in many cases.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would say that, that that second statement is certainly the biggest myth out of the two, out of the two. This kind of the rosy aspect of the virtue of, of the economic miracle by the political political expedient decisions particularly by the United States that made this that made the continuity of of money and power possible you know following 1940 between 1945 and 1950 I would I would say um is yeah that that is that
2: is certainly there was there was it was just sheer continuation yeah that's the really yeah. The really critical, I think, five-year period where, it, exactly. w- and this is true also, um, we just recorded an episode about the sort of prosecution, or in many cases, lack thereof, of, of Wehrmacht generals, yeah. which was, you know, right. a similar time period where it goes from 1945, looks like there's going to be real accountability, right. to Cold War heats up by 1950, yeah. and they exactly. said, well, let's let them off. But exactly. we, we can get to a little more about that in the, the, the Nuremberg trials and, and sort of what did and didn't happen, but could you take us through a little bit of the history here about what some of these companies do and you you um you start the book in the prologue with what you call the meeting on right. February 20th 1933 yeah. where Hitler invites all of the big the big giants of German industry right. what does Hitler offer them and what what do they offer Hitler and how does this what, what was originally kind of a skeptical relationship between totally, the Nazi party and, and, and the big business. How does this the, become a very cozy one?
0: Yeah, really? I mean, it's, it's that meeting of, of, of February 20th, 1933, actually, which t- took place in Berlin at a building that, that is still standing today at the, sp- the spray between the Reichstag and it's it's actually where the Deutsche Parlamentarische Gesellschaft is today, it's, it's actually a pa- technically a palace. Um, then the the palace of the Reichstag pre- pre- president, which was Hermann Goering uh, at the time, and you know he sends out or a an invite. No, he sends out. He invites two dozen of Germany's most you know powerful and wealthiest industrialists, financiers, executive business uh, executives, and business heirs uh, under you know, in the telegram it says, to, for Hitler to explain his economic policies to the skeptical group. As you rightly pointed out, I mean, it's three weeks after Hitler seizes power, seized power uh, has seized power. And this group of men generally are not, you know, they're, they're, they're establishment conservatives. Um, they support Hindenburg. Um, the door to the Nazi Party or to Hitler to even contemplate support only follows basically October nineteen twenty nine, Black Monday. You know the wipeout of Wall Street, the start of the Great Depression. Millions become uh, millions of Germans become uh, unemployed, and of course their companies are, are are struggling to survive. And You see that in September nineteen thirty, on that. You know the Nazi Party rides rides that wave of economic uh, and political discontent too, into suddenly becoming out of nowhere the second largest party in Parliament, and it's that until I would you know late nineteen thirty 1930, early nineteen thirty one there was, bar one or two exceptions, from big business, there was yeah no 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 material support for the and for the Nazi Party, and it is. At that point, after that first electoral success, where Hitler who himself barely has any or none uh, uh, um, kind of contacts to the business community, asks his economic advisor if he can start reaching out to you know Germany's you know the largest uh, yeah to the, to the, to my main characters basically, um, and even then in those in those two years until Hitler seizes power. You know, he he meets with the Hitler meets with Gunter Quant, Friedrich Flick, August von Fink, and and you know at this at at Hotel Kaiserhof in in, in central Berlin. But he, they're still not, you know, they they hear him out, but they're not throwing their full backing, you know, behind Hitler. They they still continue to support Hindenburg for the most part. But it's only after Hitler sees his power. Where, and this meeting where, again, you have um, Hitler who supposedly ac- going to explain his, his um, economic policies. Instead, what it turns out to be is a shakedown or uh, basically a, a very firm request to the, to the assembled men to donate to an campa- a, a election campaign slush fund for the elections on march 5th 1933 where the NSAP, which still doesn't have a majority in parliament and their coalition partner uh, their nationalist coalition partner you know want to get a majority and ask the assembled man basically to pony up and to pay three to to chip in three million reichsmark to this slush fund because what they leave out, Hitler and Goering in their speeches, um, where they promise the end of German democracy, like very explicitly, they say this is going to be the last election in the next ten to hundred years. Um, what they leave out is is a disaster, a disastrous financial state of the Nazi Party, which is twelve million in Reichs in, in debt and doesn't have any cash on hand. And you know these men end up having no qualms about signing over uh German democracy or like paying up to what is promised to them which is the end of German democracy even though and the money the money that flows in becomes kind of irrelevant because a week later the Reichstag fire happens and you know the the March 5th elections are basically rendered mo- moot because the rule of law is suspended and even in that election even with all you know because von, von Hindenburg grants uh hitler the the power to 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 suspend the rule of law to implement martial law and even with all the communists and and and, and socialists and some social democrats most of them rounded up you know they still don't um the nazi party still doesn't get a majority in that march 5th election it's only 10 days later when through the enabling act that hitler gets full um dictatorial powers yeah so
2: it, it it's a really important episode because I think, well, people have these sort of uh, almost like proxy wars over history, right? When they're arguing certain points where, you know, some people want to just generally claim and like exonerate big business generally. Like I've seen, I think it was Alex Stapp wrote a piece for, for the Niskanen Center and it was like the the myth that like na- that big business in Germany helped the Nazis, right? Saying, sort of citing this earlier history that you were right. talking about where, where they, they didn't and, and that's true. And then there is this critical moment where they throw their full support and then there's this sort of I guess you know vulgar Marxist take that of like big business. You know, fascism is like the the extension of big business, and right. of course, there you know the the big business will always side with the fascists against democracy. And you know, it's probably a little simplistic in both directions. Right. But you exactly. see at this yeah, totally. this critical moment, big business explicitly does get yeah. behind the Nazi party, yeah. and yeah. and that loyalty is is then largely uh, repaid. I think you could say totally. in many cases during during the actual Third Reich itself in those twelve years you have not only companies just sort of helping the war effort right which is which is another way i think people sort of try to downplay or whitewash some of the stuff you could maybe see a world in which a country wages a you know especially in the east a, a, a genocidal war of extermination and the companies say well we didn't really know that we were just making the tanks and the trucks and you know we we just went from making cars to making tanks right. so, you know we're just a company we're just making what the government ordered right. don't blame us sorry it got used for evil that's too bad. That's, of course, not what they did. Exactly. You know, this yeah. is there's the massive use of forced labor. There's contracts with the government explicitly using the Nazi connections. Right. These weren't just normal. Uh, oh, we need some uniforms. Who's going to make them? Right. It, it, companies directly benefited from their Nazi connections. And many of the the leaders of these companies were members of the Nazi party. There is the Aryanization of different companies, uh, many of the big banks, um, the Hertie's department store for example which is now Hertie which became the Hertie Foundation which funds the the university where i work uh, to, you know in full disclosure you mentioned bloomberg and the evacuation of the park so we should, we should all be <laughs> yeah. all, 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 dis- all, dis- all disclosed yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then and that we eat the that we eat the Nazi cookies too, so we're not we're not trying to claim. And the Haribo gummy and yeah, bears we have Haribo gummy, gummy, gummy bears yeah. on the table here. We're complicit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Up to that I don't, one, I don't know what <laughs> cool, I don't know which cool water was up to, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. And then um, also. Yeah, I mean, sort of collaboration in, in the actual genocide, you know, famously a subsidiary of Ige Farben uh, helping uh, making Zyklon B as you know, a famous example. The the point all being that these companies directly benefited from Nazi policies and directly helped the Nazi regime. This wasn't just a sort of a marriage of convenience in wartime of needing to make certain things. So. You know, I, I think we'll we'll get into the, the legacy of these companies a bit, but I think it is important to stress what happened during the Nazi regime. So could you just touch on sure. a couple of details sure. of important Absolutely. kind of exemplary cases of what happened in this period? So what you have so I mean, so you have. Well, after
0: Hitler seizes power on January thirtieth, nineteen of 1933, you know, and you have that meeting and you have these, you know, you have German big, big business falling in line. It's important to realize, of course, that they have just have had, you know, almost fifteen years of economic and politi- political volatility under the Weimar Republic, and these men that are opportunists, most of them who laid the basis for that were already rich, you know, during the German Empire, but really laid the foundation for their massive, for their were at the point where Hitler seizes power, are already Germany's wealthiest businessmen, particularly because how they profited off hyperinflation and and speculating during uh, the Weimar Republic. But, of course, they did not like the economic and political volatility of that era and were happy to fall in line after Hitler seized power because he promises them economic stability. And he delivers on that promise because what you see after from 1934 onwards is billions of Reichsmark flowing for the rearmament flowing into the coffers of, 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 of the men uh, I'm writing about and their companies. And, you know, that in itself, of course, that as you rightly pointed out, you know, producing weapons in itself, or being tasked to produce weapons in itself is not a crime. You know, even though technically it was because under the uh, Treaty, of, Treaty of Versailles, they were not allowed to produce any weapons in 1935, you know, Hitler goes public with his rearmament. And then, of course, from September 1935, so that's one aspect, is the way, is the weapons production, which continues all, you know, up until the end of the war, technically, or late 1944, now, I would say, not even, even March, uh, March, April 1945. But then, from September 1935 onwards, with the implementation of the Nuremberg Race Laws, um, and the, you know, increasing disenfranchisement of, of of the Jewish citizens of Nazi Germany is that this phenomenon of, of ironization really starts to ramp up, which also has has the initial veneer of a legal business transaction. And, you know, just to define ironization real quick, it's the removal of of from an any asset of of Jewish ownership ownership from that asset, whether those were you know shares, securities, uh, uh, companies, real estate, art, jewelry, you know, until of course the end, the most basic of 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 needs. And again, this starts uh, uh, out as having the veneer of um, you know of a of a legal business transaction, where. The these business owners or these shareholders were either coerced to sell their shares or their assets far below market value, or felt forced to sell, you know, at a fire sale at a fire sale price, because you know they wanted they wanted to they wanted to leave Nazi Germany, you know, and often had to pay a humongous flight tax to be able to leave the country to finance their their flight um and of course what initially starts off of ha- at least still having the veneer of a business transaction ends up being you know um outright uh, expropriation appropriation theft uh, is the only right word for it so that's the second aspect and then thirdly of course during world war Two, especially from once Operation Barbarossa with the Nazi invasion of uh, the German invasion of the Soviet Union starts is you know Hitler initiates the the largest coercive labor program that the world has seen to date, um, where of course millions, uh, well, tens of millions of Europeans are deported, are rounded up all across occupied Europe, are rounded up and are deported into Germany to work in, in German factories and mines predominantly, you know, from the from, from Eastern Europe, um, from the occupied territories there, and secondly, Southern Europe, and then thirdly, uh, Western Europe and the Nordics, in terms of numerical uh, numerical scale. Of course, the aspect of, of concentration camp labor and, and sub-concentration camps and satellite concentration camps also plays a, a significant part in all of that, which is, again, separate from forced labor in the sense that those who were you know held captive or were imprisoned uh, in concentration camps were then loaned out by the because that was an ss operation whereas de- the mass deportation was a, a, a wehrmacht and um, a german labor force operation the ss then starts loaning out uh, concentration camp captives to uh, some of Germany's largest companies and have and establishing sub-concentration camps on the
2: uh, factory grounds of uh, of Germany's most prominent companies still today, and so yeah, um, Contra uh, the the Balzen, I forget her first name, but Verena, uh, okay, no. yeah, Verena, as yeah. A, uh, maybe contradicting some of her statements, these people were not treated particularly well no. under glamorous conditions as, no, as she no, claims. Absolutely not. Well, and
0: and what and following Verena Bausen's comments what der Spiegel did was go to Ukraine and actually interviewed women who were arrested in Kiev and deported to Hanover to work at the Bausen factory where they got paid far under uh, far less than their German counterparts and were held under horrific circumstances at, at the cookie factory at, at the cookie factory in in, in
2: Hanover yeah and then you know, we, we mentioned some of the other the other policies, the point the point here being that these are, you know, atrocious conditions and and full collaboration and in, in some of the worst crimes of the regime. And, you know, the war, the war starts wrapping up. Uh, it's pretty clear, you know, 44 going into 45. You know, this the the Nazi regime will fall and, and the, the occupation then starts after their surrender in May 1945. And at first it looks like there's going to be pretty widespread accountability. You have the start of some of these uh, war crimes tribunals and, you know, you have uh, the Nuremberg trials and the occupation governments look like they're they're going to actually maybe get some, you know, such that it could even exist for the level of these crimes. But but some degree of what might be approaching justice. And there's a few people who are tried and convicted, um, but, but that changes pretty quickly, especially sort of 47, 48, as, as um, tensions between the U.S. and the USSR rise. And so I'll just quote um, directly from your, your book here, because I think this sums it up quite well. You say, as the Cold War commenced in early 1947, the Truman administration's priorities began to shift from punishing Germany to enabling its economic recovery. In short, the United States wanted a bulwark against communist expansion in Europe, and the western part of Germany, which had the potential to become Europe's largest economy, might serve as the key to containing the Soviet Union and reviving the rest of the continent. And then you go on to say, momentous changes then ensued. Right. Allied authorities accelerated a handover of suspected war criminals and Nazi sympathizers to so called German denazification courts, which were regional judicial panels with a setup similar to a criminal trial. Um, they got their own lawyers, and this was not, you know, the same level of accountability you would have sure. hoped for uh, under uh, in the previous years. Um, of course, then the actual federal public being founded two years later, Odenauer sure. and Co. Um, not looking to, too hard to try too many Nazis, considering uh, who made up a decent share of that cabinet. Right. So uh, the, the the priorities change here in a pretty, you know, four year period. It's pretty like it gives you kind of whiplash when you read about it because, you know, oh, 1945, yeah, they're going to get some of these guys, and then all of a sudden, for the most part, no. Could you just walk us through a little bit of that, like, really crucial four- or five-year period? Sure.
0: I mean, you have, as you pointed out, you know, with the start of the the Nuremberg trials and even a, where, of course, 24 of of Nazi Germany's, you know, most prominent political and military leaders were, were... Indicted and and bar three uh, convicted uh, sentenced to death mostly uh, bar another few examples. There was even there was even to speak of a, a of to do a similar setup for an for an industrial trial trial under Allied purview, where again you had two dozen of, of Germany's wealthiest and most powerful businessmen that were would have been put on trial or even more. Actually, we talk more about like. 30 to 50 many of those men that of course attended the meeting of february 20th 1933 would have been on the stand and some of them did end up because there was not really a impetus on the side of the allies and 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 I'm, i'm including the soviet union for 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 this part still you know to 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 hold a an allied a second a follow-up industrialist trial under allied purview the americans were worried that the soviets were going to turn it into an anti-capitalist show trial Um, the brits were very economically weak and also just hesitant france itself you know had a very powerful communist influence at that point as well was also tearing of course you know uh, had its own reconciliation and reckoning to do following the atrocities in in Vichy, France. So the United States decided to go at it alone with these 12 successor trials at Nuremberg, where you have three of them being uh, so-called industrialist trials. So you had Friedrich Flick, one of my main characters, who oversaw one of Germany's largest, if not the largest, uh, uh, privately held steel coal and weapons conglomerate um, during the Third Reich who is together with his associates indicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity and sentenced. You have Alfred Krupp, of course, of, of um, the namesake, also like Flick, namesake Steel Coal and Weapons Conglomerate, particularly more Steel and Weapons Conglomerate, um, who together with his associates is also indicted and sentenced uh, for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And then thirdly, you have the entire board of Ige Farben, um, at that point in time, the largest pharmaceutical and chemical conglomerate in the world, um, where the entire board is uh, indicted and most of them are, also end up being sentenced. And Ege Farben famously is broken up into three companies, two of them which are still around today, uh, BASF, which now is the world's largest uh, chemical company and um, Bayer which is one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies but you know it where it went wrong was as you already said it, it's it's the it's a it's a it's a denazification which which ended up being completely f- flawed or from the German side with exactly with the emergence of the Cold War you know Nazi Germany becomes quickly ancient history for uh, for the United States and the need to build up to rebuild a strong Western Germany as a viable political and economical entity, as a buffer, as a bulwark against encroaching communism. Of course, the Soviet occupied zone prior for to it becoming Eastern Germany, and and expanding Soviet influence globally. And it is that, you know, momentous decision of of accelerating the handover of of. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of suspected Nazi war criminals and and ardent believers were back to the Western German authorities, where the impetus to to truly hold these men accountable for crimes and sympathies that many of those who were judging shared in was, you know, far to none. And and it ended up being a being a deeply flawed legal process. Causing the continuation, this continuation basically straight from the third, from the third Reich to, well, to West Germany. Well, what
1: happened in these regional trials specifically? Like, were they like freigesprochen? Were they or
0: so you had so you had you could be ruled into five categories you could be like uh, like a major offender, offender, fellow traveler, exonerated, oh, yes, and okay. lesser and lesser, um, lesser offender it was the one between offender and um and fellow traveler and at least the main characters that i write about you know with the with the exception of friedrich flick all come before the nazification trials and mind you they're all you know come 1945 1946 they're all arrested and and they're and they're held you know um they're held in internment camps but it is it is those you know policy decisions by the Truman administration which are then you know from 1950 onwards are I would say increased under the uh, Eisenhower administration, you know, where they're all where they all go scot free, and of course. So it's it's a one hand that decision, 1947, 1948. Of course, when 1950 comes and the Korean War breaks out, and the the Cold War ramps up further, heats up further, it is then when you have all these, um, you know, not only the industrialists that were sentenced, but you know, tens of high ranking. Uh, uh, former high-ranking SS officers who slaughtered hundreds of thousands, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, mainly Jews, that whose death sentences get commuted into life sentences and whose life sentences then, uh, in the mid-1950s, um, get commuted to, to freedom. And that was a decision by John J. McCloy, who was also one of the architects of the Nuremberg Trials um, and or at least at the main Nuremberg trial, the first one and also of German, of, of the United States occupation policy for Germany, um, who is appointed in 1950 by Truman as the uh, High Commissioner of occupied Germany and who makes a blatant politically uh, political calculation where Adenauer and the rest of Western Germany is not happy to see to have a occupation force holding their men. In, in Landsberg prison and where, you know, a couple of dense death sentences he can't get around to, you know, the worst offenders, but even many others who again who slaughtered hundreds of thousands are are are, are released. And in turn you also have the industrialists like Friedrich Flick, who se- who sentenced to seven years, um, is arrested in June nineteen forty five, is sentenced in December nineteen forty seven and is released in July 1950, after his after prison sentence is, is commuted for, for good behavior by McCloy, and, within it, and then goes through this kind of restructuring of his conglomerate with the money he receives for it. And he's actually weirdly becomes a kind of a nascent trailblazer, like the most unwanted poster boy for Western European economic integration. But with the money he receives from selling off his steel and coal uh, stakes to, well, not only to like the Bavarian state government, but also to German, to um, French, and Belgian companies. He has like one hundred fifty million Reichsmark, which he invests in Daimler-Benz. And by the end of the nineteen fifties, he's back on top as Germany's wealthiest oh man, gosh. as the controlling chairman. of of Daimler-Benz. Exactly, he goes from exactly, he literally goes within a decade from um, from convicted Nazi war criminal to uh, Germany's West Germany's richest man and one of the richest men in the world. You Actually, know, the, the social mobility is really inspirational. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on the other hand, you know, none of his assets were expropriated, right? At least it was in a Soviet-occupied zone. In, in Eastern Germany, all his mines were taken. Um, and same for Günter Quant and his factories. But in West Germany, yeah, he was... The Allied High Commission said, okay, can you restructure some of your... Or, or, Forced him to restructure some of his steel and coal companies, but that only was to his, it's his remarkable to his profit. what remained intact. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. and but but even more so when you take the example of Alfred Krupp, you know, who was sent to 12 years, and who had part of the the Institute of Krupp AG uh, being expropriated by the by the American government, gets all his uh, also his 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 sentence, and which got much more publicity because Krupp, in many ways, even though Flick was bigger, was even was more under the radar, Krupp's release, because he was such a symbol of, of, of Nazi Germany industry, um, you know, Krupp's commu- commu- commutation of his 12 year uh, sentence and then the return of his assets to him were, were really met with massive, uh, massive, massive outrage. And he kept, he got to keep everything. Uh, in the end, and and walked out of Landsberg Prison in, in
2: 1951. I was at the 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 Krupp Mansion, um, right. you know, in, in, in Essen, yeah. and they have a little history display there. And you go through it, and there's like you know the proud kind of uh, World War One and pre World War One history, where they're making these you know really impressive steelworks right. and industrializing Germany, and then. You know they have a couple plaques. Oh yeah, we had that forced labor. Uh, that wasn't too great. And then you go into this like massive room, and it's all of the post-war history. And yeah. it's this like um, how much they're selling abroad and crop ads and all these different languages and this you know all all touting the the and all of Absolutely. this. And like the the relative just square footage that's to, that's given to each uh, period sure. of time is a. Uh, you know, it's obviously is their own history exhibit. I think you couldn't expect much better, but it is pretty shocking when when you say, you know, this was really like, kind of the face of of like the the Nazi and business links was like Krupp was so yeah. in people's mind as like the representative case, yeah. And yeah. then they really, you know, downplayed as much as they can as well. And so I, I was I was really struck by that. I could imagine. So, yeah, just, you know, related to that, that crux point about how much they're trying to tout their, their history, I um, mean, you know, sort of rehabilitating Germany in this very hopeful narrative, you know, especially in the 50s and 60s of everything getting rebuilt, Germany, you know, turning into this, this vibrant economy, what kind of happens through these uh, decades of the late 20th century, you know, you have um, some efforts to reckon with the history, um, as you said, you know, on the American side, Nazi Germany becomes ancient history. What were the the sort of political struggles over over memory culture looking like as the as the 20th century went on? I mean, Germany's Germany's memory culture in a way started with
0: with the 68 movement where, questioning, where what parents, exactly,
1: questioning what your parents Exactly, questioning what your parents do. I
0: always think it's a little bit that that movement is also like held up like in Germany as you know, being too heralded for what they actually did. I mean, what it ended up was, of course, massive, you know, in many ways was mass violence, was the the, the Red Army faction was really, yeah, it was a protest against Springer and, but of course it also quickly devolved into, into, you know, criminal and, and uh, violent behavior and of course kidnappings and, and, and terror attacks. But it was really this questioning of authority by the student movements. Of course, it wasn't only in Germany. I mean, you had it in the United States, you had it in France, uh, many, many Western countries that were dealing with the question of history, questions of authority. But it is where you see from the 1970s onwards is where you see this, where you see kind of acknowledgement on the side, where you see something that wasn't discussed at all in the 1950s and 1960s in Germany about the Holocaust, the atrocities of of the Wehrmacht, the SS, of the culpability of the older generations—fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers—where um, denazification had failed. You know, Nazi sympathies were also still, or far right sympathies, extreme right sympathies were also still widespread, particularly in the older generation, which were exactly used. To to sweeping everything under the rug and to also accepting authority and hierarchy unquestionably so, and you know you see a change coming from the nineteen seventies where there is more a public and also to to a to the rest of the world a more public acknowledgement of the of the atrocities that 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 occurred, but it really starts to. To come about following the reunification of Germany and the, you know the 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 fall of the wall and the disintegration of the Iron Curtain, and the increasing globalization, where at one hand you have millions of former forced and slave laborers being released uh, from behind the Iron Curtain and who are you know after after 45 years of, um, of having lived under, uh, having lived in the Soviet Union, also well, wait, we were also exploited, we were also deported to Germany and exploited uh, there, and are demanding uh, compensation from the German government. And at the other hand, in the United States, you have these mass uh, class act lawsuits that are being filed by survivors of forced and slave labor against Germany's largest companies. And that all really comes about in the 1990s, and you see German companies starting to worry about their share price and their sales and their standing in an increasingly globalized world. And this very, in a way to avoid or to settle these class act lawsuits, a an agreement is made between the United States government and German government under under the uh, Schröder. Uh, administration with the Clinton administration, where German, where a a a what is now the Stiftung um, Erinnerung Verantwortung in Zukunft, where five billion, well, it ends up being five billion euro, five billion euros, um, half which is paid up by the German government, half uh, by German business, um, to compensate for uh, uh, former forced and slave laborers payout is between late 2001 between early 2001 and late 2006 but you know the the most one would receive a former the surviving former um, slave laborers be ten thousand dollars or seven seven thousand six hundred and forty euros and what is particularly egregious is well two things. First of all, German government German companies don't have to in this in this settlement don't have to do any um, don't have to admit any wrongdoing or culpability. Wow. And secondly, you know you supposedly you have 6,500 German companies paying into this um, paying into this foundation, but it ends up being that 17 companies pay 60% of the money uh, for on behalf of German business. Which are the big ones? Which, Daim- which are Daimler, BMW, Volkswagen, Allianz, Deutsche Bank—the the ones that have
2: to w- worry about their share price, basically. right? Because exactly. Is a, exactly. If it's I it's mean, a smaller, like Mittelstand, yeah, exactly, one, you don't well, have which to can really also care.
0: be huge, but are not, yeah. you know, so much in the limelight. And and a lot of them, a lot of you know, a lot of companies said, "I'm not going to. We're not going to pay." in. we didn't pay. We didn't. We didn't uh, use any forced slave labor or something like that, or
2: just just don't say no, we're not going to pay. in period yeah very uh good um you know these third way noyamita governments i'm right. you know, glad they could got they could uh, famously you know reach compromise in the state right right, stand- <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> and right uh, yeah i mean just a i mean just a, a really you know just sort of stress that that sum that you discussed with 7600 euros maximum i mean yeah. that's in obviously early 2000s money which if like you know you 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 try to trace that back to what would be a, like an hourly wage at the time you know like Christ. i mean just that's like uh, that's abysmal yeah it depends yeah. yeah and you know l- let alone just honest pay for for right. work let alone for like the, the atrocities and, and the working conditions like just no nowhere near nowhere near like true culpability and it seems like that's a kind of a common thematic thread that runs through a lot of these things you know you mentioned I think it's, it's also this time period where you see the proliferation of some of these company histories that are commissioned exactly, and, exactly. And, and people trying to acknowledge it. So there's this like this need to say we're doing something. And, it you know, it is better than nothing. Right. Definitely. But at the same time, it's it allows the companies to say, well, that's like, you know, close the book on it sometimes literally. And that like that's that. Right. Like we don't we don't need to worry. We dealt with our past like that box is ticked. Let's go on selling. Our, our, whatever product around the world, and you know that that's kind of the end of it. And so, it's a way of kind of buying your way out of like any kind of real substantive responsibility. Exactly,
0: and th- that's exactly. I mean, this lets us where to where our conversation started, you know, to today, and and this lip service that is being paid to German. Remembrance culture, where you know Germany's most powerful and wealthiest actors are sidestepping, sidestepping sidestepping Germany's remembrance culture. Germany's, you know, rightfully lauded um, remembrance culture, where you have you know the the other. I started off giving the the examples of the BMW quants, but the Porsche family is another you know blatant example of. you know, in 2018 a foundation being being established in the name of Ferry Porsche, who designed the first Porsche sports car in 19 in 1948. And a having an, an academic chair, the first Germany's first academic chair in corporate history being endowed at the University of Stuttgart, with this statement saying if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. And the Porsche family has never said a word about Ferry Porsche who was voluntarily applied to the SS in 1938, entered the SS in 1941, um, surrounded himself as CEO of Porsche in the 1950s and 60s with former high-ranking SS officers. And in the late 1970s, spewed virulent anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger, who was a a Jewish co-founder of Porsche, who was... You know, thrown out of the company in 1935, and uh, erased subsequently erased from Porsche company history. And neither that about his father Ferdinand Porsche, who of course famously designed the Volkswagen, um, and who convinced Hitler—well, Hitler tasked him to do it—to conv- to design a prototype, and then convince Hitler to put that prototype into production. But the Volkswagen. Only 650 of what later became Volkswagen Beetle were produced um, during the Third Reich because Ferdinand Porsche and his son in law, Anton Pierre, whose heirs today control the Volkswagen Group, the largest car maker in the world, um, ended up being the directors of the Volkswagen factory comp- complex in what is today Wolfsburg, and uh, where tens of thousands of forced enslaved laborers. Were uh, exploited under the most horrific circumstances, producing weapons for the Nazi war machine, including you know, and there were sub-concentration camps on on the, the factory complex, and it it um, you know it was it, it's and the Porsche family were together with their cousins the Piachs are this year planning on spinning off Porsche from the Volkswagen Group and IPOing it at a value of as high as a hundred billion uh porsche have never spoken about uh again uh, neither Ferry porsche's third reich um legacy as well as his that of his father Ferdinand. and then you have you know a foundation in the name of Ferry porsche endowing a a, a chair at um a chair in in corporate history at the university of St- stuttgart with 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 such a statement, you know. So
1: are they not even at the point of commissioning the academic well, to do the study, or well, where that's are we very that? That's exactly, so okay. this, is
0: very, this is a very good point you're bringing up, because it is, in 2017, a very flawed academic study by uh, Wolf Rampita, who is a professor at the University of Stuttgart, uh, a, a whitewashing study of, of, of Porsche during the Third Reich was published, mind you wolfram peter is the same guy who was who who um, was commissioned by the Hohenzollerns to write like expert opinions about why you know Berlin Brandenburg should and the federal government should return uh, the assets to the to the to the Hohenzollern the the former family and he's basically a hired gun so he writes this whitewashing study partially whitewashing study where they you know, he denies that uh, Adolf Rosenberger was Aryanized out of the Porsche car design company, um, and he never inspected the the papers of Adolf Rosenberger uh, were with his heirs in, in Los Angeles. I never uh, inspected uh, what, uh, yeah, never inspected that side of the story. And on basis of that, of that study. They end up commi- uh, funding the um, the academic chair at the University of Stuttgart. So it's really this kind of subtle, insidious, you know, infiltration also of 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 yeah of of, of academia. Super and shady. Uh, yeah, totally shady.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of examples of these, you know. I mean, you mentioned, like, naming this chair, which is pretty shameless. There's, um, you know, there's examples of the, the company headquarters still building, still being named after the the old patriarch who was right. affiliated with the regime. Sometimes they still have a statue in the building. It kind of kind of goes on and on. And there's, what I found particularly galling is when some of the children of this say, you know, these revelations come out and they say it's really hard for us to, to like, to see what our grandfather did. Oh, like, like for it, them
1: emotionally, yeah, personally. I
2: don't, like, yeah. I don't really think that's yeah. the biggest injustice right, that went exactly. on here. And, yeah. And you have some companies just sort of, you know, outright just denying anything was their responsibility. Like um, this company uh, Vata, which is like a, a potash mining company, um, and they they descend from AFA, who was also owned by uh, the quants, right? Yes, yeah. Vata
0: was a battery company. It's actually yeah. it is a
2: battery company which uh, descends from AFA, uh, AFA.
0: and actually Varta is today is the is the company that produces. The batteries in our AirPods, or if you one uses AirPods, um, so, but yeah, now f- Farta is a is a is a particularly um, plain example in the 1970s and 80s of how they treat, um, th- you know, their. F- former slave laborers who, 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 write, who write to them for...
2: for, for yeah, I think they, they just... You write that they sort of just outright deny this request from a grant of Danish slave laborers. Like you said, this is early earlier in the 1970s, but um, they say, "...since we recognize neither a legal nor moral obligation that could be derived from culpable behavior on the part of our company, we ask for your understanding if we do not take your request into account." And then uh, uh, later, one of the descendants of the, the Quant family sort of asked about this. Uh, he's quoted saying, we must try to forget about this. Similar things happened all over the world. Nobody talks about those yeah. anymore. And I mean, well, uh, definitely stress everybody to, to buy and, and read the book. It's great. And you'll see a lot of quotes like this. But just to show you that there's um, some, it, it wasn't just uh, Reina Balson who made a, a pretty no. insensitive comment about her company's No, past. I mean, yeah, they,
0: they the heirs of the five families that I describe in the book for those who, who have publicly said anything about this history. You know, I mean, I think I'm still dumbfounded with the complete lack of reflection. And, and it also seems how cut off from reality uh, most of these people are.
2: And Michelle, did you have any uh, any other things that you pulled up and want to add in?
1: I guess just one thing I found interesting from the New York Times article is that sometimes interest in these companies get sparked through like a documentary or something that's like more widely available to the public. And so I guess like what would be your wish for people to like obviously read your book and read about these families, but how could we make it more clear? Like what would a real reckoning look like? To
2: me, it's like a crazy situation, right? Where you have like... You know, just growing up in the U.S., right? These come like, right. people love these German companies. Yeah. Like, you know, they people do. dream of owning a German yeah. car. They yeah. want to have a German dishwasher. Yeah. They, like, they, people, you know, German engineering is, like, this sort of, like, just buzzword generally, yeah. right? And people, like, really applaud and, and like these companies. And and I think a part domestically that, that can insulate them, and I'd be curious what you think about this, is, like, German billionaire money is a bit more hidden, right? Like, in the in I'm the totally US right. or UK, it just feels, like, more, like, flashy. Um, and here, I mean, I think that... I remember reading a, an Economist article about this, too, where, yeah. like, Germany has more billionaires than the UK, yeah. but you don't really... Yeah. You don't really see that. We're not as present, much yeah. Yet. Which I found like shocking. Totally, because no. you think also Germany, like more equal country, like higher higher tax rates. They say, yeah, that's yeah. true on income, but it's not true on wealth. No, like, definitely, wealth inequality no. Oh, no, no, is mild. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah in, in addition to Michelle's point about what we can actually do for remembrance culture, I think it ties into the, the current Absolutely. status of the Absolutely. companies and the billionaires themselves. Very good
0: point. I mean the first of all, I mean my book is a is a argument in favor of historical transparency, and I think at the bare minimum, what con- consumers can expect from these families you know who control swaths of the global economy still today is that if you own or you control these uh, consumer facing brands like BMW and Porsche and you st- these people still feel the need to to name you know global corporate global foundations media prizes corporate headquarters you know academic chairs after their fathers or grandfathers that the bare minimum what people can expect is that um, these companies and these families are transparent uh, uh, about um, the history of these fa- of, of, of these men, and you know by only celebrating the business successes, you know you don't learn anything. You know you learn from history by showing the good and the bad. And um, if you don't want to show that these men committed war crimes or were or voluntary members of the SS, then you should rename. Um, these global foundations these media prizes these corporate headquarters and these academic chairs if you don't want to commit especially in a time when there's so much misinformation um, you know globally you know these families were so powerful have an even greater responsibility um, I would say towards society but also just simply towards consumers um, and their shareholders to be transparent about history
1: and I mean it would fit the zeitgeist of like uh um felling the statues of Confederate um, names in the U S and like, you know, it's kind of coming up the renaming of certain streets. comes Some streets up in, in Berlin. Berlin well. and yeah. And yeah. It yeah. seems to be in people's consciousness to like kind of go looking for this stuff. It would. Yeah. Be absolutely the bare minimum to. <laughs> Yeah. Of this stuff. Um,
2: yeah. And this this also comes from the the New York Times piece that you write that we'll also link to in the show notes. Um, and I think, you know, it, it directly relates to all this. You say, how can it be that three of Germany's most powerful business families, their companies, and their charities are so out of step with the country's lauded remembrance culture? You say you spoke to Jörg Appelhans, right. who was a longtime spokesman for the. um, about the continued use of their name on the headquarters and the media prize. And in an email, he said, quote, we don't believe that renaming streets, places, or institutions is a responsible way to deal with historic figures because doing so... Prevents a conscious exposure to their role in history and instead fosters its neglect So just to Michelle's point about the the Confederate statues in the US Which you'll see a very similar argument of, what right. well, we need to respect and learn from our history and if we take them down We're erasing history it, it, It's like almost verbatim the same exactly. kind of Confederate apologist rhetoric. but this here. one is
0: even more insidious because because here most people don't know
2: You know, if there's a,
0: you know, a, a, a statue for, 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 you know, General Lee, you know, people know as an historical figure who he was, you know, and and what atrocities he committed or like, or at least, yeah. And, and, but, but, but for Herbert Quant, you know, people don't, they know, oh, he saved BMW, maybe because also because the Quants are such a particularly BMW Quants as Jeremy's wealthy family's family, you know. They're so reclusive; people don't wouldn't know.
1: Well, it's it, because the follow-up question would then be: Should their descendants have this wealth too? Maybe, or like, what should? <laughs> yeah, you mentioned they're pretty tied that's to some of the political you know. I'm just saying; I think yeah. that's why they're so hard line on this is because you can't give them. Well, a niche, I think maybe. actually they're
0: hard line on this because they derive their entire identity from from who they are descendant of. From their father and grandfather, from Herbert Quant and, and Günther Quant, and if you disavow that, because they didn't create any of that wealth. It was their father and grandfather who did it. So if you disavow that identity, or if you disavow these men, what is remains of your own identity? Mm. Uh, what right. are you then? Because you're already completely in the shadow of your father and grandfather. You are literally heirs. That is your only position in life so if you then also go erase their name then you kind of erase yourself in a way i mean this i'm totally psychologizing here but that is how i view and also i think they're worried about and i would argue the opposite i think they're worried about if they go transparent fully transparent that they that they hurt their that they hurt their businesses that they you know that it would hurt the share price of bmw or the sales and i would actually Again, I would argue the opposite because I think, especially in this day and age, you know, consumers respect the fact if you're saying, Well, this is the man who saved BMW for 1959, but he was also he could also committed war crimes or he, you know, did XX X and Y. If you then so persist in wanting to have a you know, BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant, with the motto inspire responsible leadership. You inspire responsible leadership by being transparent about history and not by whitewashing it
2: yeah you'd you'd hope that the the business incentives might align with the uh with with the the being honest about history incentives i mean i think i think you're right to touch on some of the sort of personal identity aspects as well but yeah i mean it, it, my my reading it's got to be a mix of sort of the, this, sure. like economic and kind of personal psychological totally, totally, no, no, right yeah
0: those are the two main exp- since bar 1 air you know none of them wanted to talk to me you know uh, um this is the, this is the best theory I can pretty the fascinating that trouble. they didn't want to <laughs> right, yeah, do right. interviews
2: for the the book called <laughs> nazi <laughs> billionaires <laughs> 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 yeah, well, um, I think I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, it's a it's a really fascinating topic, um, and and we're really glad that uh, you wrote the book, and we're willing to to come on the podcast. And uh, I should say, joining us here in Berlin in person, which was yeah, great. That David, it was David. Good to do David do. was in Berlin briefly and took some of his valuable good, good time to, to stop by. Yeah. yeah.
0: Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Michelle.
2: Yeah. So this has been great. Um, and yeah, we everybody. will link to the book as well. You know, available um, at. Uh, We'll encourage uh, responsible online marketplaces and uh, f- and find bookstores <laughs> everywhere. So definitely encourage everyone to go out and buy it. It's a great read. And David, thanks so much again for Thank coming you. on.
1: Thanks, David.
2: Thanks a lot, everyone. Oh, See we you say
1: choose at the end. Do you want to say choose with us? Choose. Choose.
0: Choose. Choosey.